I invite you to come with me to the book of Romans, the 11th chapter. Romans 11. The Apostle Paul has been speaking, writing to these Roman believers, a mixture of Gentiles and Jews who have put their faith in Christ. And he has been in these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, defending the faithfulness of God and defending the sovereignty of this same God. And he uses a picture of the Gentiles being grafted into the tree that is the covenant people of God. And he says that some of the branches, referring to the Israelites, the Jews, had been broken off to make room for Gentiles. And come with me to verse 17 then. That if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Pay attention to that 22nd verse. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now for the work of your Spirit to do what only you can do. That is to illumine our minds and free us, both heart and will, to love this and obey and live in this reality. For this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last time we considered the goodness of God or the kindness of God. God is kind and loving. That love is shown generally to all creatures, specifically and specially to those who are His children. But we're going to look this morning at the other side of that coin, the severity of God, the justice of God. God's goodness is not in some way a contradiction toward His justice and severity. What Paul tells these Gentile believers is, if you scornfully reject the kindness, the goodness of God, you will find yourself experiencing the severity of God. 
The old theologian James Boyce, one of the founders of Southern Seminary, said it this way, Indeed, in the Scriptures everywhere, it is God's glory and dishonor, His holiness and sin, His love and His justice that are placed in fearful contrast. These things go together. In fact, we see this justice of God worked out both temporally and eternally. Now, when I reference justice here, there are some who may be bothered by that because justice seems to be a very popular word today, pretty much gutted of meaning or somehow spun on its head and twisted. We witness so much injustice, we often despair of true justice. Have you ever noticed how often films that focus on bad people getting their comeuppance are popular, right? We love to see the story where the wrongs are righted and the bad guys get what's coming to them. And we especially like it if they can do it in less than 90 minutes. But then we see how the wheels of justice turn. Sometimes justice doesn't seem to take place at all. Sometimes the wicked get away with it, at least apparently. And can we at least have the integrity to admit there's times when we think what we want is justice from God. But if you think about that very long, you realize therein lies a problem. Abraham, Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you, he's speaking to the Lord, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? As Abraham is pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah and most especially for Lot and his family. Yes, we witness a lot of injustice and we despair of true justice, but the fact is God acts with absolute justice in every single thing He does. For us, we, we at times try to do what I'd call compartmentalization. You, you look at God and you do a pie chart. And we've got mercy over here, grace here, love here, and we kind of hope the justice thing's a little narrow, right? And the fact is, God is not composed of parts. This is what theologians call the simplicity of God. God is just as just and righteous as He is loving. His mercy, His grace, His wrath, all of those things are fully and entirely and essentially and eternally 
part of who God is. And I shouldn't have even used the term part. I made a mistake there. That's how hard this thing is, right? When you speak of the Almighty. So consider this with me for a moment. Let's look for a moment at God's temporal justice. How does God show justice in time? Now justice, Tozer said, embodies the idea of moral equity. And iniquity is the exact opposite. It is inequity, the absence of equality from human thoughts and acts. So does God act justly in time on earth? Well, this is seen throughout the Scripture, isn't it? The justice of God on the unbelieving? Adam warned, do not eat from this tree. He does so, he and Eve. There is severity mingled with mercy in that he did not destroy them, but gave them hope of an intercessor, a mediator, some way to be rescued. But God did act. You read the account then of the flood. God grieved at what he sees going on in the world and how wicked humanity has become. And through his power and purpose, he brings a flood upon the earth. Or at the Tower of Babel with the confusion of languages. Or in the book of Exodus as the Lord breaks the back of Egypt the superpower of the day, or God's work in the book of Judges over and over again, judging the people, sending them into captivity till they cry out for relief. You see it borne out in the fall of what becomes the northern kingdom, Israel, and then later the southern kingdom of Judah. Sent out cast abroad, scattered. Now those are just, that's just a survey, if you will, of examples in Scripture. You can think of Herod, who at one point tries to make peace with a city. And the city wanted peace with him because it was economically a good thing to do. And so he appeared to give a speech to them, and he was dressed We would probably say gaudily. They thought that he was brilliant. And, of course, to make this thing work, patronizing is nothing new, by the way, in politics. They cry out after his speech, Ah, tis the voice of a God, not a man. It says in the text, the angel of the Lord struck him. And he was, I love Luke's summary, Dr. Luke. He was eaten of worms and died. Wow. If you read the historical accounts, Herod died a horribly gruesome death, Herod Agrippa. But I would turn your attention for just a few moments to something Paul says earlier in this same book of Romans. In the first chapter. Now, most of us who've spent any time reading the scripture, we love Romans 1:16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And everything looks lovely at that point, doesn't it? And then you read verse 18. And how does verse 18 start? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His eternal, excuse me, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are, hear these two words, without excuse. There is enough revelation of God in nature that nobody on the day of judgment will be able to say, now God, you just didn't make it clear that you were there. That's a lie. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God to give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and mammal and animals and creeping things. And then in succession, you read this phrase. Therefore, because of their idolatry, God gave them up. You could translate it literally, God handed them over. To what? The lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, what reason? That prior, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Do not lose sight of this, my friend. This is Paul's analysis historically of civilizations and their fall. They begin by failing to give glory to God who has revealed himself in creation. They fall into controlling little gods that just look like big versions of themselves. And whatever it is their lusts, their thoughts, their imaginations came up with, thus they created their gods. 
But you see, my friend, theology always leads to ethics. The outcome of the ethic was this. Rather than living in any sense a holy life, in particular about sexual ethics, they gave themselves to impurity. And as if that wasn't enough, they then handed themselves over, God handed them over, and they found themselves engaged in what the apostle terms unnatural acts. Now you all recognize that everything I'm saying right now is going to lead to my cancellation, culturally speaking. That doesn't matter much to me because I don't think they're paying any attention to me to begin with. The Scripture says that homosexuality is sin. Period. Full stop. It is sin. And not only is it sin, it is evidence of the judgment of God. Now, my friend, if you struggle with homosexual desires, please hear what I'm about to say. This is not downing you. This is not trying to, in some ways, delegitimize your existence. I say to you that there is a Savior for all kinds of sinners and every kind of sin. There is grace for you here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But my friends, the justice of God is abundantly clear in this first chapter of Romans. And if that isn't enough, he will then open the final paragraph of this chapter at verse 28, and since they did not see to fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, and then he gives a list of all the things they do. My friends, Romans 1 could be the analysis of the entirety of American pop culture today. This is the justice of God. Now I know people say, are you saying that God acts justly and brings down suffering on people for sin? Yes. Now, we typically get in the wrong place and ask the wrong questions when bad things happen. We commit the same error that the disciples did. Now, Lord, those people over there that uh, that tower fell on, or those that Pilate had them killed as they're doing sacrifices, were they worse sinners than everybody else? And you remember what Jesus' response is? No. But unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. You see, my friend, our struggle is we don't think about God acting justly all the time. And He does. Now, I don't think that needs us to pontificate that this particular tragedy, this particular accident, was God bringing down judgment on specific people for their sin because there's people out there who have behaved worse than some who have died and some who have died that have behaved better than those around them. The reality is, my friend, we should always bear in mind there's a God to whom we must answer, and that God is at work in this world, and when we see tragedies 
that rain down on people. It should not cheer us. We ought not be standing in the background imagining ourselves in the arena. Yay! Get them all, God! If he gets them all, guess who else is in the mix? But this is not a denial of the temporal judgment of God. God's temporal justice is ultimately going to lead to eternal justice. But let me point you to another element of the justice of God. For if God is absolutely holy, 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 if God never lowers His standards, if God is entirely just in everything He does, how, how can such a righteous, holy, just God have anything to do with us. I remind you of something, brothers and sisters. The Scripture spends somewhere between zero and negative numbers (laughs) trying to figure out how to get people to love God. That is not the problem in the text of Scripture. The problem in Scripture is how do you get a holy God to love us? Now, the typical answer is, well, he just, he's just so kind, he couldn't be just and rain down wrath, he'll just let it go. That, my friend, is idolatry. It does not reflect the one true God. The opening of this book of Romans, besides talking about the descent into madness, moral madness and destruction, in Romans 1, or the descent into hypocrisy in the second chapter of those who claim to be moral and ethical and yet don't live up to their morals and ethics, the problem of the third chapter where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How do you answer that before a righteous God? And that's when you come to chapter 3, verse 21. My brothers and sisters, hear what I'm saying. If you grasp Romans 3, 21 to 31, you grasp the heart of God. You grasp the gospel. You understand how God does this. What does it say? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be, hear this description, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Now, I know some will object. The cross, the cross was about the love of God. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Yes, we heard that earlier, and that is the word of God, and it is true. But how can God love rebels? How can God justly let people like you and I into heaven? Hmm. I mean, the background check ain't going to go well. You got no clearance. What is the answer that the Scriptures provide? Just as God had illustrated throughout the Old Testament, through the Mosaic Covenant, through the sacrificial system, innocent animals would be given over to death, their blood poured out, their carcasses burned on the altar to demonstrate the principle of a sacrifice. Somebody has to pay the debt. And yet the writer of Hebrews will tell us it could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, once, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God's righteousness, God's justice, our sinfulness, God's love. How can God set his love on us? How can the love of God come and rescue us without diminishing his justice? And that's why Paul opens this section here in the third chapter with these two words, but now. But now, this age, this time, the new covenant, the advent of Christ, our D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love the way he puts it, there's no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but God. But God. And what is it that God did? He brings about a righteousness apart from law, apart from the old covenant. The law and the prophets testify to it. It is through faith. The righteousness of God appropriated by faith. What are you talking about? Christ Jesus, for those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, brings redemption. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You see, my friend, the faith that saves you is not a faith in some generic concept. It is not a faith in faith. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done. He is your substitute. How can the justice of God forgive us? Because our sin is laid on Christ, the innocent, holy, all-powerful, almighty, yet God in the flesh, Son of God, takes our sin on Himself and is the place where justice is satisfied. Christian, your sins are already punished. Two thousand years ago, 
on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. What should have fallen on you and I fell on our substitute, Jesus Christ. And that act of atonement, propitiation. Now, folks, if you don't, you say, well, those are such big words. Why use those words? Because of the words the Bible gives us. Now, I know some, well, this is offensive. Yes, good. I'd rather you be offended than indifferent. Yes, what I'm telling you is you can never be good enough for this just God. Don't for a moment think, well, I'm just going to tell God to give me what I deserve. You don't want to do that. Well, I do pretty good. I'm a nice person. Hell is filled with nice people. God demands perfection. And you're not it. But his son, this son appropriated by faith, all in the same position, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and justification is his gracious, redemptive gift. He declares us righteous in his sight, stamps on the account not guilty, paid in full. My friends, you cannot have Christianity without this. It doesn't exist. This is why I would contend that liberal theology is no longer theology. It's certainly not Christianity. There is no gospel. You take away the doctrine of sin in light of the justice and holiness of God, whatever you have is no longer Christianity. It was Wilberforce successfully abolished, led in the abolition of slave trade in, in Britain. And people wondered about him. They, he was so doctrinally driven. And they said, couldn't you just have your Christian ethics and leave all this other stuff behind? Here's what he said. The fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly gained strength. Thus, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity went more and more out of sight, and as might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself also began to wither and decay, being robbed of that which supplied it with life and nutriment. Christian, this is why you and I should be so careful here in the realm of dealing in civilization, civil society, in politics, and other things. Keep in mind, you're dealing with wicked, fallen human beings. They are sinners. There's only so much that can be accomplished by political action. There's, this must be accomplished. Our task is to pray and live. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that will begins in it being done in us individually, being done in us as corporately, and ultimately, yes, influencing the world, but as coming through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God seen in the propitiation for sins. And it makes God, and I emphasize these words, just and justifier. 
Here's what I'm trying to tell you, my friend. You get into heaven on good works. Every Christian that ever gets into heaven gets there on good works. They're just not yours. It is what Christ has done. And you see, my friend, that's why you can never think about the justice of God without thinking about the gospel, the good news. They have to go together. Now, I said I was dealing with this thing temporally. But you see, when we talk about this temporal act, and I think this is important to see, we are actually affirming, literally, there was a fellow named Jesus, born of a virgin, born under the law, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, who lived his life perfectly without shadow, without error, without failure, fully satisfying his Father, and then took upon himself as our substitute the guilt of his people and dies on their behalf. And the way to God is open. God is reconciled to his people. But that then connects to God's eternal justice. And we don't have to spend a great deal of time on this other than to say the Bible is abundantly clear about this. The moment you die, at least according to the parable that Jesus told, and I think not parable but story of the rich man and Lazarus, you either awake in a place of comfort or a place of torment, and thus you stay in spiritual reality, your soul, until the second coming of Christ. And when Christ comes, then comes the judgment. Paul, in preaching at Athens, will use these terms in Acts 17. He has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Or Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will set at his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And then, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and did not visit me. And they will answer saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, my friends, as Christians, we have a view and understanding of origins. How did we get here? God made us. What went wrong? Sin. How do you fix it? The Lord Jesus. What's the outcome? For believers to know that you shall be preserved. And when the day of judgment comes, Christian, you need not fear. Christ is your Savior. You are justified. Remember the lines of this hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, amidst flaming worlds and these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold I shall stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Thomas Brooks put it this way. Better be a poor man and a rich Christian than a rich man and a poor Christian. You'd better do anything, bear anything, be anything, rather than be a dwarf in grace. I love that language. You see, my friend, if you don't understand the justice, the righteousness, the absolute holiness of God, the gospel seems small. But when you understand who he is and the glory of who he is, suddenly the gospel is immense. So I would have you glory in the justice of God, Christian. Because you can. Not by a phony chutzpah of, well, I'll work it out. I'm glad to stand on two feet before the Lord and explain myself. Oh, my soul, no. No, no, no. But if you're in Him, you're secure. And is this not good news? I know I do this fairly regularly. I make no apologies. Friends, I can't tell you how much good Pilgrim's Progress can do to your soul if you'll take time to read it and think about it. Listen to this. And this is the very beginning. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called Salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell off from his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. 
Then was Christian glad and lightsome. I love that word, lightsome. (laughs) And said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. Rejoice, Christian, your God is just. Rejoice, because he has poured out that justice on his son for you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name.